Hi, Dr. Therese. Good evening and welcome to First Say Chats by Dr. G. I'm Dr. Dana Grandison, a physician in Barbados and your hostess for this evening. First Say Chats by Dr. G is a live podcast 
that provides listeners with a unique opportunity to not only hear complicated medical conditions explained, but also clarify any misunderstandings you may have about that condition. After all, a medically aware and educated patient is an empowered patient. And this evening, our episode is entitled Breathing Life Back Into Palliative Care. And our guest this evening is none other than Dr. Leslie Reese. Dr. Leslie Reese is a Barbadian general practitioner and a palliative care physician. She is currently the Assistant Medical Director of the Barbados Association of Palliative Care and chairs their education committee. Dr. Reese is a fervent advocate of palliative care and uses innovative channels to educate others about the importance of this especially important but largely underrated area of medicine. Dr. Leslie Reese's philosophical belief focus on the importance of ensuring the best possible quality of life for patients, as well as a general view that we should all strive to ensure that we are fully living and not just merely existing. It should be no surprise then that Dr. Leslie Reese also is passionate about speaking, blogging, vlogging, to remind others on how to live instead of merely existing. And so this evening, I have Dr. Leslie Reese. Good evening, Dr. Reese. Welcome. Good evening. Thanks for having me. Great. So this evening, our topic is on palliative care. As you correctly said, quite often misunderstood. So I want to start off by asking you, what is palliative care? Okay. So... I'm going to give you the World Health Organization's definition of palliative care. Okay. Which is that it's care that's reserved mainly for persons who have a life-limiting serious illness. Any life-limiting illness. Many people, when they hear palliative care, immediately think of cancer. But right. as medical professionals, we would know that there are a large number of illnesses that can actually lead to death as a part of the normal course of the illness. So palliative care would apply to persons with those illnesses as well. There are four tenets to palliative care. It's not just about the relief of pain, suffering, but any physical suffering, as well as social suffering, spiritual suffering, right? Right. So rather than just focusing on the patient in palliative care, we look at the patient in their environment Mm -hmm. as a whole and I also like to say that the when we have a palliative patient the index patient is not our only patient but also their family their loved ones because they're all affected by the illness and eventually by the death that's going to result absolutely um and quite often sometimes persons may even confuse palliative care and hospice care can you actually tell us a bit about the difference between the two? Yes, I'm very glad that you asked that question. So yeah. there is a difference between palliative care and hospice care. Hospice care is a subset of palliative care. So it goes by the same tenets as palliative care, but hospice care is reserved for patients who are expected to only have six months or less left of life. Right. So that's more so your person who may not just have a life prolonging, uh, uh, um, um, a chronic illness, because chronic persons with chronic illness can also receive palliative care. That's correct. Yeah. Right. Or a life limiting illness. But some person who actually has is, is now essentially has exhausted their options and death is now imminent within six months. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Great for hospice care. Next question that we have for you, is palliative care available for children? Yes, it is. That's a very good question. I actually right. at present have a patient who is a child. Right. She's only eight years old. Um, so yes, because children can also suffer from illnesses that 
threaten to shorten their lives, definitely children can be good candidates for palliative care. And very often, I mean, yes, it would depend on the illness that they're suffering from, but very often children do very well with palliative care and go on to surpass the expected um, life expectancy. Right, right. Sometimes what what kinds of, you started to, to essentially just now allude to some of the symptoms that palliative care could treat. You, you mentioned pain essentially um, yes. very early on. But apart from pain, what are some of the other symptoms that palliative care specialists or palliative care team may, may attempt to treat a, a patient for? Yes. It's not mm-hmm. uncommon for us to see patients, even cancer patients, who are actually not in any pain. Huh? Right. So very often, the, gen- the general idea is that as long as you have cancer, you're going to be in pain. But there are lots of cancer patients who don't experience pain or, or who experience very little pain. Right. And then back to the point that not just cancer falls under palliative care. There are other illnesses. So for instance, if you have a patient with, let's say, end-stage pulmonary fibrosis, their issue is going to be shortness of breath or dyspnea. So we are looking to relieve the suffering associated with that. In patients with cancer who may not be suffering from pain or who may have pain, they may also be suffering from nausea, vomiting, so we address that as well. Disturbances in sleep is very common. So right. that's another area that we would need to address. Things like swelling about the body, inability to mobilize. So all those are areas that we address. And of course, to be able to address them, you need to ask about them. Because as you would know, Dr. G, when you're dealing with patients, sometimes you may ask a patient, how are you doing or do you have any concerns? And yes, they may point out the most salient things to them at that point in time, but oftentimes they may be forgetting other smaller but still irritating symptoms. So right. for every visit, I try to make a point of detailing and going through asking about all the different um, possible symptoms. I actually have a sheet called the Nature of Suffering form, mm-hmm. which I'm more than happy to share with you so you can share with our listeners if they're interested, right. uh, which details right. the different types of suffering that we expect to encounter in palliative care, just right. to make sure that you kind of do a checklist, even if not physical, a mental checklist to make sure that you're covering everything that your patient needs from you. And I'm actually glad that you you brought up some of those symptoms because quite often we think, you know, if a person is receiving palliative care, they must definitely be in pain. And and all terminal conditions or sometimes even chronic conditions, um, the patient has no pain at all. But you mentioned in your WHO definition that it's not just dealing with the physical ailments, but also some of those psychological um situations or or complaints that patients may have so what about the depression or anxiety or stress of the person simply thinking about the fact that they are going they're dying they're in a state of dying yes that's a very big thing Mm. and again this is where not just the patient comes in but also their relatives or loved ones whomever is very close to the patient and maybe helping to take care of them So anybody who has been told that their life is going to be shortened by this illness is going to have some degree of anxiety and maybe even depression. So that's something that we definitely want to address. And I'm glad that you earlier made a point of referring to the palliative care team because palliative care is definitely a multidisciplinary and team approach. One person or just a doctor and nurse are not sufficient to deliver quality palliative care to any patient, regardless of what their ailment is. So yes, we definitely do address um, emotional and psychological concerns, as well as spiritual concerns. 
spiritual regardless of what that person's beliefs may be. So you right. might have a patient who is not necessarily Christian, but they may consider themselves to be spiritual. Their thing may be, you know, about energies and meditation and so on. So we respect that. And we often employ the services of a chaplain. And a trained chaplain is someone who, although they may be a minister of a particular faith, they're also trained to work within the different faiths and cultures and spiritual beliefs that a patient may have. This is a very interesting um, misconception that persons have. Persons often think, okay, once I decide to start palliative care, I'm going to die sooner. Does receiving palliative care really mean that you, you're, you're going to hasten your steps to, to a premature or early termination of life? Quite the opposite, actually. Great. Um, I'm glad that you brought that up. shown that palliative care may actually prolong um, life of patients. All right. And the concept really makes sense if you think about it. So a patient who is receiving palliative care is better able to cope with their illness. A patient who is better able to cope with their illness has a greater fighting chance. So yes, you may not be able to cure the ailment, but we certainly can improve your quality of life and help you to better deal with any issues that come up. Also, another misconception coming out of what you mentioned mm-hmm. is that once we start palliative care, then we've given up on you. That's actually what I was going to ask next. Because <laughs> a lot of persons actually think, you know, that once I commence palliative care, um, you know, I, I have come to peace with the fact that I am dying. I am giving up on everything else. So I am my last resort is palliative care. And I'm glad that you actually brought it up because that's something that a lot of people actually think. So yes, continue by all means. Yeah, and a lot of doctors actually think that as well, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but palliative care is meant to continue along with disease-modifying treatments, mm-hmm. which is why we advocate for palliative care to be commenced as soon as a person has been diagnosed with any illness that we expect is going to shorten their life. So it's not that we're saying, oh, Miss Jones, well, you've been diagnosed with breast cancer. You're only at stage two, but, you know, we're going to send you over to palliative care. This means that we're not doing anything for you. No, that's not the case at all. We're sending you to palliative care so that palliative care can address everything that's going on with you holistically because there's so many changes apart from just what's happening in your body. As we just mentioned, in your mind, there are going to be changes because now you're, you're, you're worried. You're worried about how is this going to go? What about my family? Who's going to look after them? And then there's the social aspect to it where, let's say, she was somebody who was the owner of her own business and running the household and so on. And that's going to change because of appointments and possible hospitalizations and all that. So then her role in this society, as she knows it, is changed, or in some cases even taken away from her. So to have the support there while you are still being treated for whatever comes up is what palliative care is all about. So even for a patient who is in the late stages, who may be terminal, if they develop, let's say, a urosepsis, it's not to say that we're not going to try to treat it unless, right. of course, the patient has an advanced directive saying, I don't want to be treated if any serious infections pop up or anything. So right. palliative care is just to walk along with you, not to completely replace what you would be doing otherwise. Good. And I'm glad that you brought that up because a lot of, uh, a lot of persons actually, and there's a very strong misconception that once you start palliative care, you cannot pursue active treatment for your primary disease process. 
And and so I am very happy that you actually alluded to the fact that really and truthfully, it is not about stopping unless, as you correctly said, the patient has uh, stated you use their actual autonomy as stated, I no longer wish care for this based upon advanced directives, although we don't have advanced directives yeah, here in Barbados, um, but, you know, has actually stated, I do not wish to have any further medical intervention, but I would then certainly accept palliative care. So going back to the types of persons that may have palliative care, we spoke about some of those persons who may be suffering from, for instance, cancer, but um, there are also conditions that cannot be cured outside of cancer. Um, what about that patient who's had something as what some may think is very simple, but something as simple as multiple trips to that emergency room in the past, let's say three to six months. Is that a person who's a candidate for palliative care? Multiple trips to the emergency room for... For, for, their, management. for their management, um, let's say of diabetes mellitus or hypertension it's interesting that you should use that example because just last weekend i was on another podcast and i said in barbados especially given the prevalence of diabetes as well as the sequelae that we tend to see where diabetes is concerned i would consider diabetes a disease which is somebody with diabetes can benefit from palliative care for Absolutely. all the reasons that I mentioned before. Right. You know, diabetes, nowadays somebody's been diagnosed with diabetes and you literally can see the, the worry on their face. Absolutely. Because they are now thinking of all the implications of this and the way that this is going to change their lives. So to have the support there of a palliative care team whether it be a social worker, dietitian, physio, you know, all these people helping you to live in the best way possible. Right. So another thing that I wanted to mention is that the WHO very recently expanded their definition of palliative care to include illnesses that may not necessarily lead to death. So for me, that shows that they understand the importance of the supportive care that palliative care offers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And certainly it's for for persons who have chronic conditions. And as you said, it's really to help them cope and be able to to better grasp their condition and manage their condition so that their quality of life remains good, as best as it can be. As best as it can be, as opposed to stressing yourself. And certainly a person who's returning to the emergency room week after week or every other week because of a chronic illness actually points to someone who's actually not um, coping well, some person who's probably not being managed as best as they can when they go home and have to take their medication. And certainly that person could uh, do with an additional set of help which I, I am glad that you actually brought up the, the different persons who make up your palliative care team. You actually alluded to some, but would you, would you go into a bit more depth in terms of who makes up your palliative care team or a palliative care team? So a palliative care team, what I would say is literally any allied health professional that you can think of can make up the palliative care team. The reason being, just as persons who are not palliative require these services, palliative, a patient who is palliative or requires palliative care needs these services as well, and probably even more so. But right. for instance, in Barbados, our palliative care team is made up of doctor, doctors, nurses, For the most part, here in Barbados and in the Barbados Association of Palliative Care, we use mainly registered nurses, but that's not to say that nursing assistants or nurses' aides don't have a role in um, palliative care here as well. Physiotherapists, respiratory therapists, social workers, psychologists, the list goes on and on and on. Surgeons form part of the palliative 
team as well because you know that there are palliative um, surgeries, radiotherapists. <laughs> they, they, it's all encompassing, really. And uh, really. Right. So I, I implore people, especially allied health professionals, to not think that they there's no role for them in palliative care because they may be very surprised the role that they can actually play. And, and as you said, because the, the, there's an entire gamut of persons that can be a part of that team, it's really tailored to best helping the particular patient. It's not just a one-shot-fits-all, essentially. Exactly. But, but where you look at the entire uh, potential disease process of that patient and all that can potentially be going on apart from the physical manifestation of disease and then picking a, 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 set, a group of specialists that can help you and help you to cope and walk you through the steps um, of your illness. Now, quite often, uh, persons think that palliative care is only offered in a hospital setting. What are your thoughts on that? Is palliative care offered outside of the hospital here in Barbados? Most of the palliative care offered in Barbados is then outside of the hospital setting. Great. Great, great. Um, so, sorry, go on. No, go ahead. Go ahead. It actually is. Uh, it, it's a concern of mine that we don't have a, a dedicated palliative care service at our main hospital, the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. And I think that that's something that definitely needs to be addressed and to be fixed. At present, we have. As it relates to cancer patients, we have oncology doctors who are more or less expected to fill the palliative care role. But there are only so many oncologists or oncology registrars in the QEH, and there are loads of oncology patients. So I actually don't think it's fair to expect them to be able to provide quality palliative care as well as quality oncological care right. within the same setting. Um, there's a dire need for palliative care service because when you speak to the other specialties, internists, general surgeons, etc., and I have, I've had conversations with these people and they see the role for palliative care, but they just don't feel equipped to even have the first conversation to say, well, Mr. So-and-so or Miss So-and-so, there's a doctor that I would let you to see, and this is the reason. Right. We have a question here from one of our listeners, Zilly, and he asks, what about theological counselors who would have training in pastoral care? Would those come as well to be part of the team? Yes, of course. Um, that's a very, very good question, and I'm glad that it was asked. Yes, there would be a role for that. Barbados tends to be a mostly Christian society. Right. So many of the patients that I have come across in working in palliative care here have always been open to prayer and worship and so on as a part of their palliative care. And because I am of the Christian persuasion, I am comfortable with it. So, right. of course, having a theological counselor who can relate to them in that way, because I am not a trained counselor. I can sit with a patient and try to comfort them. But at the end of the day, that's not what I'm trained. I'm not a trained counselor. So having right. somebody who actually is a trained counselor and who can relate to that patient at a spiritual level would be ideal. Good. Um, in terms of, you spoke about palliative care being offered outside of the confines of the hospital. What about if the palliative care is started outside of the hospital and for uh, unfortunate reasons or the worsening of the illness, that person now has to be um, hospitalized? Can palliative care continue privately within the hospital if they wanted to? 
At present, as far as I'm aware, none of our palliative care physicians have um, admitting privileges. Right. Either to the Queen Elizabeth Hospital or to Bayview Private Hospital. Right. Um, which, again, to me, underlines the point that we need a palliative care service. Right. Queen Elizabeth Hospital, because it's not uncommon for patients to have to end up having, if I have a patient for a year, I expect that patient to have at least three to four admissions during the course of that. And it can be many more. So I would like to be rest assured that, you know, when my patient goes into hospital, my patient is going to experience palliative care as it is meant to be delivered. Right. In the hospital setting. Very often we have patients who are quite reluctant to go into hospital because of experiences that they may have had before. Right. So from a point of view where they've been receiving palliative care, the way that palliative care is supposed to be delivered within their own homes and are faced with having to go into a hospital where they don't expect that they're going to get similar care, that's often a difficult decision for them. Absolutely. Because then there's the actual reign of, or the fear behind potential treatment and, or, or the possibility of not knowing how they can continue their treatment even after yeah. they've been hospitalized. Yeah. Given that a lot of persons tend to think that palliative care is associated with pain, persons who have cancer and cancer has pain, does pain medication hasten death? You mean specifically morphine? Because there's, yes. there's, there's, yeah, there's, there's this there's thing about morphine and opioids. Yes. yes. No, it doesn't. Right. It doesn't. All that morphine given at the appropriate dose, morphine given at the appropriate dose does not hasten death. It helps. It, it relaxes the patient. It makes them more comfortable. It relieves pain. And it also assists with um, dyspnea and stress breath. Right. So they're they're multiple benefits to giving a patient morphine and because there's so many misconceptions as it relates to morphine use and because there's a stigma associated with morphine we have two issues here in Barbados I find one you have some nurses or even some doctors who are unwilling to administer or prescribe morphine because of their own misconceptions and their own fears about it you have, and you have patient relatives or patient, well, usually it's not the patient. It's usually their relatives who are concerned about things such as addiction. Right, so, which, is, which is actually yeah. what I was going to go into next. <laughs> Our opioids yeah. addictive. So you can, you can take it straight into that with your continued <laughs> comment. So we, so we know that opioids are addictive, but... We need to look at the setting in which we're using the opioids. So right. this is not somebody who we expect to get better, completely better, and go out and be addicted to morphine and try to source it on their own. This is someone for whom we are trying to improve their quality of life as much as we possibly can for whom we know the end result is going to be death. So really and truly, just based on that alone, the fear of addiction should be removed. But what I tend to do is to sit both the patient and the family down. And as I said, I can't say that I've come across a patient who needed morphine, has refused it. It is always the relatives who have a concern about it. I just set the family down and speak to them, educate them about it. Right. And, and certainly, although opioids, which would be the class that morphine belongs to, along with the pethidine and, and the tramadol and, and, and methadone, all of those are considered opioids. And yes, they can be addictive, but 
especially when used incorrectly. Incorrectly. And usually once you're under the guidance of your healthcare practitioner, whether it's your GP or certainly in this situation, a palliative care specialist, the, the likelihood of some person becoming addicted to opioids is significantly decreased. Now, given the fact that, especially with um, uh, the person having an outcome where they, the medical condition that they're having is sometimes terminal, associated with pain, um, as tolerance builds up or the disease process progresses, the pain could get worse. So the person may require more morphine. But again, this is all done um, with the assistance and guidance from a healthcare a practitioner, not just simply going home and saying, okay, well, the doctor gave me morphine for 20 days, so I am going to take an additional four tonight. No, that's not, it, it's, a, it's a partnership, essentially, where you, you simply have that conversation with the doctor and say, hey, doc, uh, Dr. Reese, I, I find that my pain is a little bit more this week. Um, is there anything that we can do? And Dr. Reese may say, well, um, we can increase your medication because it's still within a safe range. Uh, and sh she can actually map out how to do so safely versus you actually doing that and potentially hurting yourself. And as you correctly said, um, increases in opioid doses, we've known to be a, a, a normal part of pain management, especially in someone who's terminally ill. Okay. Um, um, so it's really, as you correctly said, educating not just that that patient, and so usually it's not the patient, as you said, because they're the ones who are getting the pain and just want some relief. They just but, want relief. <laughs> absolutely, but more so the family members who are concerned, rightfully concerned, because, uh, I mean, even in the U.S., as we speak now, there's a huge opioid crisis, and, and so we, we often hear about persons who can potentially die at home from opioid overdose and the use of things like fentanyl and, and, and stuff like that. But um, we need to make sure that we are doing it safely with the guidance of a physician. Will using pain medication mass knowing if your illness is actually progressing or getting worse? Not necessarily because right. there tend to be other indicators. Right of worsening so such as you may have a patient who goes from having a pretty decent appetite to suddenly having no appetite or a patient who becomes very lethargic unable to even get out of bed so typically it's not the pain that tells us that things are getting worse or that we're closer to the end usually it's the other symptoms and certainly because you have an entire management team, there are other parameters like blood work or, or other signs and symptoms, as you correctly said, that actually let the healthcare professionals know, okay, things are actually starting to make a decline. And most importantly, prepare the patient as well as, the fa as their family members for, yeah. for the inevitable. Um, should you start pain management when the pain is unbearable or is there a particular time that we actually start pain management the minute you get pain i i always say to patients my role here with you is to make sure that you're as comfortable as possible right you cannot be comfortable with pain no matter how much you try to be a superhero and i i would always joke with them and say you know we're not trying, we're not looking for any martyrs, you know. Like, there are no prices for bearing pain. So, right. if you're in pain, say that you're in pain and let's deal with it. But Absolutely. It's a, I'm not even, I'm, I wonder if it is a societal thing here, but right. so many patients grin and bear and grin and bear until they can't take it anymore. And it's important to not play catch up, not try to play catch up with pain. And I say that to patients, let's stay ahead of the pain. So I'm not saying that you need to take something if you're not in pain, because I know that you would like to have periods where you're not taking anything. And if we can achieve that, that's great. However, if you start to have pain, you need to remember that this is going to get worse. So right. 
start taking your medication and take it on the four hourly or six hourly or what have you rather than waiting and trying to play catch up and when is the correct time to have conversation with the family members to start to make them aware of the process of dying in so again, I have to relate it back to what I see in practice. Unfortunately, here in Barbados, most of the palliative care referrals that I get would be patients who are who we would put into the hospice category, having six months or less to live, which is something that I, as well as my colleagues, are working really hard to try to change. Right. So because I see patients who are really usually much farther along from my first meeting with them we talk about everything so I ask them you know you start with the run of the mill stuff but then as we go on and I feel them out then we start talking about death and the process of dying so I usually will ask them if they know what to expect both the family and the patients. And some people may have some ideas based on either having taken care of somebody who was dying before or having heard anecdotal things from around. And so I then would correct or add on to that so that everybody has an idea. But what I would say is that every time And it's not been many times because I've learned my lesson. But every time that I have neglected to have that conversation the first time because I thought the patient looked, oh, you know, I'm sure she's going to be around for my next visit. Didn't happen. Right. And so what are some of the things that we need to explain for family members of persons who are actively get him palliative care what does the process of dying look like well very early on in the when patients are in the early active phase of dying they tend not to want anything to eat or drink at all and in every society food is the way that we show love absolutely when you have a family member who does not want to eat or drink anything. The immediate thing that we think is, oh my gosh, you're going to starve to death. Or, you know, people are going to think that I'm starving you. So family members tend to keep trying to offer, offer, offer. And sometimes it actually really irritates the patient. And I try to explain to the family members that, yes, he or she knows that you're doing it because you care about them, but it becomes irritating for them. And that irritation is a form of suffering. So if you look at it as, okay, yes, I love them and I'm trying to be helpful, but I actually am inadvertently causing some suffering, then they understand. I say you can offer, but don't force. Right. Sometimes when they see that the patient hasn't been drinking or eating for a few days, but they're still alive, they ask about administering IV fluids. So that's the time to have the conversation again, because you would have had it before, about the way that IV fluids work in somebody who is well, who we expect to get better, and somebody who is actively dying. And the fact is that administering IV fluids in somebody who's actively dying actually either introduces suffering or worsens their suffering because... Mm -hmm. You get third space in the fluids, fluids in the lungs, fluids in the extremities, and you're just making the person very uncomfortable to make ourselves feel better because it's not that they need IV fluids, right? Um, There are changes in breathing that occur, and it's very important to have this discussion with family members. Otherwise, you invariably, invariably will end up with a situation where ambulance is called and a patient is dead on arrival at A&E because they died on the way there because the family didn't realize that 
this is the stage that we spoke about. Yeah. All right. All right. Um, a lot more. There's a scale that we use. So once a patient becomes less mobile to the point where they can't get out of bed, not eating or drinking, unable to care for themselves, that is an indicator that we are really much closer to the end. Some patients begin to hallucinate. Different people have different views on what this is, but in medical speak, we call it hallucinations. Right. um, So it's important to let family members know, like you might hear so-and-so talking about somebody or they're talking gibberish, or it seems like they're talking to somebody in the room. Don't get alarmed. Don't try to correct them. Just understand that this is a part of the process. Right. Quite often we hear about persons brightening up just before they pass. Talk to me about that. Uh, because, I, I mean, if, if you've spoken to any Barbadian family who has been around someone who's died at home, they would always say, and she was so bright today. She was really, really with me. Um, and then she passed. Um, give us a bit of more insight on, on what happened. Or what is thought to happen? Um, uh, or is this a phenomenon that occurs quite often, rather, I should ask that question, because I don't think that's something that any of us doctors can, exactly. can answer. It does happen very, very often right. to the point where if it doesn't happen, I wonder if I missed it. Right. But it, it almost always happens. Another thing that I don't know if anybody in the chat has ever been with somebody when they at the point of dying, but everybody sheds a single tear right before they die. Right. And quite interestingly, they actually did research on, on the tears of dead people to see whether they were of the same composition as sad tears or just right. of the lacrimation. And it wasn't sad. And there were not sad tears. There were not sad tears, no. Okay. So that that's actually quite comforting to know because a lot of people often think that, you know, well, Gran is suffering really, really bad. And, you know, now that she's actively dying, we have noticed a change in her breathing. Um, she has not eaten for the last four days, even though sometimes you may feel compelled to force her to eat which I often have to remind family members, that's actually not what you want to be doing because you can actually also cause worse complications yes, like from forcing them to aspiration. Absolutely, which is the bringing up of the food going into the lungs, which we don't want, uh, which makes, that's what causes or makes suffering even worse. Um, so it's, and, and th- we must remember uh, the one thing that I would recall being a, a medical student is always patient autonomy and patients have a right to refuse care and sometimes persons have gotten to the point where they are ready to go and i think that it's it's, it's quite important that we actually respect the wishes of that person who is dying and and allow them to die with dignity yes which is which is which is something that we sometimes don't often allow um, and, but need to have or normalize or have more conversations, especially with your, your healthcare professional or your palliative care specialist or team um, very early on if you, you have family members who are certainly ill uh, or, and or terminal who may need that assistance to really understand what is that process of dying. Now, Um, We went on to speak very early on about, we had an earlier conversation about hospice care. I just wanted to go back there quite a bit. Um, Is hospice care offered here in Barbados? And does it look any different from our palliative care offerings? Do we have anything in particular that we provide for these patients? And is the focus essentially the same? So... Yes, the focus is the same. Hospice care is provided, but we don't have a hospice physical building in Barbados. So at present, hospice care is provided within patients' own homes. Mm -hmm. The issue with that is that not everybody's home is ideal 
for receiving any type of medical care, especially the care that is involved in hospice care. You may have a patient who is on oxygen. For the most part, patients, when once they reach the stage of hospice, may require nurses to be on hand to right. administer medications parentally. Mm-hmm. So um, we definitely could benefit from having a hospice in Barbados. So that's two things we need. A palliative care service at your hospital and a hospice, a physical hospice. Um, But yes, the goals are the same. To have patients, as you already said, die with dignity and help them to live while they're still living. So as much as possible, give them the best quality of life that is possible for them in their current situation. I I I like the fact that you spoke I'm gonna I'm sorry jumping back now to family members because you made a comment about utilizing or bringing the family members on board with the decision making process and educating them about exactly what has happened. Yeah. Are are there any particular key tidbits that you would give to family members um, not for during the process of dying but after death because family members sometimes can be part of the caregiver team Mm -hmm. and being a caregiver is a job unto itself almost like taking care of another you Mm -hmm. right (laughs) and and quite often caregivers can have burnout but more importantly caregivers become accustomed to caring for that person and then there's that sudden loss Loss, um can you speak to us about about any any advice or tips that you can give them certainly um immediately following the death of their loved one well i'm glad that you brought that up because it's important to note that palliative care doesn't end once the patient dies palliative care continues past death to check in with family, offer bereavement counseling, and any other areas of quote-unquote closure that the family members and caregivers may need. Um, The Barbados Association of Palliative Care offers bereavement counseling as a part of our services. And again, this is why it's important to have counselors, social workers, and clergy on hand to be able to offer those services to the remaining loved ones after the patient has passed. What we do outside of the counseling is to encourage family members by reminding them that, you know, your loved one had the benefit of palliative care. So just think about all the things that they were able to enjoy as a result of benefiting from palliative care, whether it was something as simple as being able to sit on the patio and have the nurse feed them ice cream. You know, like we find that in the terminal stages of life is when you really start to appreciate the things that we take for granted, the really, really simple things that we may take for granted on a day-to-day basis. So also encouraging caregivers that you know you did a really good job you were you were there for them you were strong you did what you could and it's okay to feel the loss not just of your loved one but also the loss of the role that you have adopted whether it be for the past six months or six years right that has not been taken away from you so that's something that you need to address and not just move on like nothing has happened and I see here there's actually a, a slight plug uh, for you to lazy in even of our clinical pastoral graduates from Codrington Co- College there that can go. assist that can assist the bereavement process. Um, in terms of someone also went on to ask, is there a hospice in Barbados, which you would have previously answered and said that no, we don't have um, such a facility um, in Barbados, which is needed quite quite badly. Um, for persons, as I correctly said, to die with dignity. Um, but your title, Breathing Life Back into Palliative Care, um, and, and part of your 
your bio spoke about ensuring that persons live life to the best and not just existing. And, and quite often, sometimes I have seen, uh, by the way, everyone, Dr. Reese actually has a, a lovely video blog, uh, a vlog or a video blog. Um, she's also a doctor TikToker, so she does post quite uplifting stuff, stuff that's quite funny sometimes. And, um, and always reminding us uh, every opportunity to essentially live our best life. I, I have never watched a, one of your posts and not not laugh, cackle out, uh, because, <laughs> because sometimes they are so funny and so uplifting. And as you correctly said, sometimes it's this, this, the small things in life that make a difference. And quite often we don't think that those things are impactful, but it's very important to enjoy life and be present and to be aware of what is happening. So for those persons who may not um, at this point in time have a need for palliative care because they may later on in life, um, or they may know someone later on in life who may have need for palliative care, do you have any tips before we start to wrap up about how best to take care of yourself and how best to live to your full potential? The, the number one thing that I would say is to remember that there's so much more to you than just what you do. So if you are a counselor, you are a counselor who loves to cook. You are a counselor who loves to paint. You are a counselor who loves to spend time with your children. We need to acknowledge all aspects of our being so that we can really fully enjoy them, enjoy life and touch others. Because as you said just now, and I really smiled when you said it, is that we don't, we often don't realize how much sometimes even the simplest things that we do or say impact other people. And this is negative and positive. So I would say whatever talents you have, whatever gifts you've been blessed with, Use them all. Don't don't just focus on one and neglect the other. Find the time, carve out the time. There are 24 hours in a day. I hear people say, if Beyonce could do it, you could do it. <laughs> right. It's so true because you, you need to carve out that time to really take care of yourself. Um, and sometimes that, that also means not doing anything. Exactly. Which is very, very important because sometimes we think that in order to be fulfilling in life or fulfilled rather in life, we need to be actively doing something, always on the go. I, I suffer sometimes from that a bit, not knowing when to cut out and say, okay, no more. Um, no learning that process, um, but certainly it is quite important to, to take time for yourself. And, and I'm glad that you actually said, turn to things that you like. If you enjoy cooking and you get reprieve from cooking, cook as, as your way of, of getting that relief or make videos like you, um, you know, because I, I also think that that's your way of, you know, taking off the, the to what I call mentally thaw. And it's very, very important. And, and certainly even as a caregiver, now going back into the, the caregiving space and palliative care space, that, that you as a caregiver, you really take that time out to, to treat yourself. Um, shouldn't overdo it, especially given that this month is no sugar November, um, which, I, which I actually saw your post for today about no sugar November, um, because she was actually saying that she is sweet herself. So she, she finds it quite offensive. Um, but certainly, <laughs> but certainly um, in no sugar November, you know, you may have a sweet tooth. And try to see if there's something, an alternative that you can find um, whether it's sweetening whatever you want to do with fruits versus actually adding in sugar. Um, but take time out to treat yourself. If you're the type of person that would go to the spa, get a massage, take time out for you. And certainly, um, can a person who's receiving palliative care benefit from things like massage therapy? Yes, they can. Massage therapy, even something as simple as a pedicure. Absolutely. I had a palliative patient. Every time I went to him, he had 
the pedicure size host doing a pedicure and I was like this has given him so much joy it was amazing so so really and truthfully palliative care can is there's no fixed way for palliative care and I think that is what um, Dr. Reese has been trying to essentially educate persons about and I think it's really important um, that persons appreciate that palliative care is not simply someone coming giving you drugs, sticking you and saying, okay, you're going to be passing in a few months, so you just need to rest until you die. Um, That is not what palliative care is. Palliative care is really making sure that if we know that you are going to have a shortened time with us in life, that you live as best as you can for that period of time. And so if it is, as, as you said, if it's a pedicure, then you get that pedicure to make sure that, that, you know, you feel as good as you can. And, and that part of that palliative care team is really there to provide you with that experience um, and also to provide you with the knowledge base so that when you have challenging situations, you can have that conversation with your doctor and say, doc, you know, now that X is happening, what are my options? Yes. And that person yes. is there to essentially guide you. Dr. Risa, I want to say thank you so very much for coming on this show this evening. Um, I, 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 I see some, we already have some cheers in the room. And, you know, and someone said, enjoy what time you have left. I want to say thank you very, very much for joining us. I want to also say thank you to our listeners who have participated this evening in the blog. Um, and I want to encourage every single one of you to join us on Podbean, follow us on Podbean or Anchor and join us next week for First Aid Chats by Dr. G, Closing the Gap. I must apologize, however. Uh, I know some of you uh, thought, based upon uh, what I actually uh, told you last week, that we were going to be having breast pathology this evening. Unfortunately, one of our surgeons had an emergency and so was unable to join us. So we, we, Dr. Teresa was so nice, although she was actually booked to come to see, to, to speak with us on the 17th. She was nice enough to accommodate us quite early. So again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Reese uh, for doing that. But um, next week we will have our surgeons back hopefully um, to talk about breast pathology and then to go on about some of the following week about some of the options that you have in breast cancer management. Thank you, everybody. Have a great night and live your life to the fullest. Good evening, everybody, and have a wonderful night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.